Greetings, Earthlings, and welcome to the Big Chew Podcast. I'm your host, Maria Stockmuller. Here at the Big Chew, we ask, hey, how can we live on Earth without the stupid? What can science tell us? What can spirit tell us? So grab a bite and let's masticate. fast modern life you're taking your career to the next level plus there's a house and a car and getting out on weekends and you meet someone who says let's move to the Amazon and you do you're unhappy anyway and it's an adventure I mean it's the Amazon and a strange thing happens as you live there with very little stuff and even undergo some really rough times you start to feel more at home, more content than you have ever been in your life. Donna Mulvena has done all those things. She's the author of Wild Roots, Coming Alive in the French Amazon. It's her story of moving from a professional life in Australia to a wilder one in the rainforest of French Guiana. We talk about the challenges and deep rewards of adjusting to a life where nature still makes the rules, not humans. I would love to live with monkeys. But how can we connect with nature wherever we live? Let's start with where you were coming from when you moved to French Guiana. Now it helps, I think, um, at least from my point of view, when you think about moving to French Guiana with a French Olympic athlete. That mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, that sounds appealing. Um, what was your life like in Australia before you moved? And did you feel discontent or did you feel this is just kind of the way my life is and I will continue this way? Or what, what was going on with you before your move? All right, well... Two years before I came to French Guiana, I'd spent a decade in the UK. And I travelled to the UK then because I felt something was missing in my life in Australia a decade before. So Mm -hmm. I went to England for 10 years and I was very happy there. But after 10 years, I was tired of living out of a suitcase. I wanted to settle down into a nice home with nice things, with a nice (laughs) job and have a nice, peaceful life. So I went back to Australia for two years. And the same emptiness and discontent and pressure started to filter back in. And I... Now, excuse me, when you say the same, do you mean the same as in Australia or the same you had experienced that also in England? No, the same as Australia. I think in England, because I travelled a lot, I was quite free and Mm -hmm. there were no expectations. I I felt free to do whatever I wanted. But when I went back to Australia, I seemed to put a lot of pressure on myself, pressure to... 
uh, meet expectations, I suppose. And I also found in one thing I found about Australia is people measure happiness by wealth. Mm -hmm. So when I went back after that long and I'd say to my family, oh, how are my cousins or, you know, how are my friends? The answer was always something in the lines of, oh, they're great. They've just bought a new car or they've right. just bought another house or they've uh, they've just got a big promotion. And it, it intimidated me and I felt like, oh, I haven't. I'm not successful enough, I haven't achieved enough, I'm running out of time, I have to get moving, I, you know, I have to get a home, I have to, I have to appear uh, like I've achieved something with my life. So I put a lot of pressure on myself and that same discontent started to creep back in. Mm -hmm. have, you ever, have you ever been to the United States? No. Yeah, this is like ground zero for that kind of crap. Yeah. <laughs> where where it's like, you know, you are what you own and 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 people say, you know, the person with the best with the most toys wins and yeah. there's such there's and and there are people who recognize that and who reject it and who try to live otherwise, but it really is the mainstream kind of thing. And I think like you say if you don't conform to that way of thinking, people view you as some sort of dropout or a loser. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And uh, I found that a bit difficult to cope with and I went, I fell back into a career that I wasn't really happy in but, you know, it paid well and it paid a mortgage and all those things. And um, so the same disconnect, content crept back in. And then one day I went kayaking on a weekend and one of the members of the club who I'd seen in passing she gave me a book and she said I just really feel compelled to give you this book mm -hmm. and it was a book called Facing Demons and it was about a woman who had completely transformed her life and I read that book from cover to cover and afterwards I thought no this is it you know I'm I'm going to change my life for the better and there has to be more to life than this. And it was about a woman who'd had quite a horrendous life but she turned it around and she felt happiness. Mm -hmm. And I thought if a woman who has gone through those experiences can find happiness, uh, self-esteem and feel worthwhile, then I can. And I really... It, it sounds a bit hogwash to people, but I really sat down and I pleaded with God. I really asked for help, whether it be God or the universe or whatever. I just asked somebody to help me mm -hmm. um, because there had to be more to life, or I hope there was. And things snowballed from there. It's like I opened myself up to more opportunity and it was only a few weeks after that that I met Frank and then of course not long after that he said why don't you move to French Guiana with me and I thought you know what have I got to lose <laughs> <laughs> now had he lived in French Guiana before no never and you do a lot of canoeing there and you have canoe races and canoe trips is that something that was already 
active or was this something that you were trying to develop there? No, it just happened by coincidence, really. We were in touch with some people in France. We said we were coming to France for a holiday and that we might go on to visit French Guiana. We weren't... We had planned to make a big change and to move, but it wasn't set in concrete either at that stage. And um, some people in French Guiana said to Frank, oh, we would love to have you here because we have some funding and we really want to start up a sprint canoe club. It's perfect Mm -hmm. timing. Well, as soon as he knew there was an opportunity to start a club and to give something back, He'd got to a point in his life where he kept saying, oh, I really, you know, I really feel like I have to give something back. He was successful in sport and he really attributes that to the tireless volunteers who helped him. So he thought it's a perfect opportunity to give something back. Yeah, that was one of the main reasons we went to French Guiana. And of course, I really wanted to see the Amazon. You know, it's the Amazon. You mentioned that you just asked somebody, whoever, for some help to change your life. Can you give me an idea of what your religious background was? Sure. Actually, it's a little bit similar to yours, Maria. And I was really thrilled to read on your website when you said that you felt more authentic in the woods or by the ocean than in the church. And uh, I went to an Anglican school where we went to chapel every day and I never questioned my belief in God but like you I always felt drawn to the outdoors so I describe myself as a Christian but not religious because Hmm. I did view religion as something that took place in a church and I always felt more drawn to the outdoors. If you describe yourself as Christian but not religious Mm. I had, a, I had a strong personal belief in God in that I feel that there has to be something more, but I okay. didn't, at that point, I didn't go to church. Yes. Okay. Now, you had said in your book, Wild Roots, and I'll have a link to that on the, in the show notes so people can read it for themselves. You said that when you were living in Australia, you were you said I'd worked and played in nature but it was in a controlled environment where nature was confined to straight lines on my terms since then my alignment has changed and you also said nature helped break the cycle of busyness busyness in my life and took away my desire to control and own things were you even aware when you were in Australia that that's how you related to nature no, I had no idea. I I always liked nature and that's what motivated me to study horticultural science. Mm-hmm. Uh, I worked in a nursery in propagation where I propagated subtropical fruit trees and mm-hmm. everything was down to systems and, yeah, it was a controlled environment. And uh, on the weekends, I spent time in nature as well. I really liked identifying different types of plants and I'd run in nature. And I think I viewed nature as some sort of stadium to play in and Mm -hmm. something that uh, gave me a nice living. But then I went back to my, well, it's not a normal life, but to my normal life of acquiring more possessions and, Nature was almost there for my means, and 
in a way I yeah I controlled it for my enjoyment. Mhm. So say when you first moved to Guyana. Mhm. Um am I pronouncing it correctly? Yes, the it's the locals call it Guyane. Guyane. Okay. That's right. Yeah. So when you first moved to Guyane, were you were you shocked? Were you? I remember that scene you described where you were walking in the in the backyard. I guess you would call it a backyard, and you were just overwhelmed with plants, and you almost had you had to get some height. You had to be able to look down on it in order to kind of process it. Is that is that an accurate description? Yeah, I think because in the Amazon the jungle is so vast, it's you can't control it. It almost controls you and it's always trying to claim land back. So it's always breaking up the footpaths, the road. If you leave a house unlived in for a short amount of time, there's vines growing through the window. You know, mm-hmm. it's it's wild nature. It's not controlled. There's no boardwalks. There's um it it's it's wild. And uh, that is a perfect example. When I went to live there, there was so much growth around the house. The first thing I did was go out there with a machete and start hacking it all down because it, even though I love nature, it didn't have any value to me. It was a bit intimidating. I didn't want nature that close to me. I didn't want it that close to the house. I was too scared of what might be in nature, whether there'd be snakes in it and insects. And I chopped it all down and then, of course, later you probably read in the book that I realised mm-hmm. I'd made a fatal mistake because I'd robbed the hummingbirds of one right. of the food sources. Yeah, as far as kind of the fear of the unknown or something, and and somebody commented about this in the book that mm-hmm. you were from Australia, mm-hmm. which has more poisonous... <laughs> <laughs> more poisonous animals and insects and stuff. I mean, don't you have those like huge mm-hmm. toads that are about the size of dinner plates that like eat your dog That's or right. something, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And they you've got sharks and, and... <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's right. I'd made up my mind to be frightened. I didn't go there with an open mind. I was already scared. I was already frightened. Mm. All the horror stories I heard before I went about man-eating anacondas and uh, parasitic fish that swim up your urine stream and giant caiman. And, uh, yeah, I just believed it. And the doctor at the medical centre, he really put the fear into me when he Mm -hmm. listed a whole page of tropical diseases that I might contract and a lot of them were mosquito-borne diseases a lot of the time when I was outside well the first time I went outside I was covered in deep repellent I had deep clothing uh, you know I was covered from head to toe yeah I was paranoid about catching malaria or dengue fever chikungunya and you did catch chikungunya (laughs) that's right chikungunya (laughs) <laughs> yes. And and that is a mosquito-borne disease, right? Yes, that's right. It's and you sim- were really sick. I, I was very sick, yeah. I was in a lot of pain. Uh, it started, it takes two weeks before the symptoms begin to show. And they were so subtle. It literally was 
my one finger just wouldn't move properly and I found it difficult to use a knife when I was making some lunch. And then the next day my joints, oh, the next day I thought I had the flu. Mm -hmm. And by the time Frank got home from work, I was in bed with a really high fever. And after that, I went downhill fast. I, I was just like a little old lady with rheumatoid arthritis I had to be helped out of bed I had to be he had wow. to dress me he had to help me get in the car and the pain it was just like somebody was stabbing me with a knife where oh it attacks different joints in your body and I'd had a oh. shoulder injury previously years before and it attacked me there you you can barely breathe it's like any motion at all sets off this pain I couldn't walk because my ankles were all swollen and the soles of my feet ached and it really messed with my head. It made me, I was really irritable and paranoid and negative. <laughs> well, yeah, when you're in cranking. pain like that. Mm. And uh, it wasn't made any better when the doctor said that the symptoms could last for two years. Right. And so this was like a medical doctor who said this, right? Yes, that's right. Then Frank got hold of some herbal medicines, right? And yes. tell us that story. All right. Well, the doctor said that there wasn't any treatment for chikungunya. And uh, he gave me some really strong painkillers, which didn't help very much at all. They did help me sleep, but I still couldn't mm -hmm. eat. And I was still in a lot of pain. And I remember Frank saying to the doctor, there's thousands of plants out there in the jungle. You can't tell me that there isn't one plant that's a treatment for chikungunya. But you can't mm -hmm. tell me that there's just nothing, no tropical plant that will help treat a tropical disease. And then, of course, he started to ask the locals about medicine and he was directed towards the Amerindian village and he went to ask for some medicine there. So he actually went to the village and to, to get the medicine and was this something that they were accustomed to having people coming and asking them for medicine or was that a surprise to them? Or Yeah, they're quite a timid people, the Amerindians, but it was fortunate that Frank knew a husband of one of the Amerindian girls and uh, the husband used to stand outside the shop having a drink with the locals and Frank got to know him. So it was him that Frank asked about the medicine and he brought the medicine to Frank. Mm -hmm. And the medicine was graviola leaves. In Australia we know that as a soursop tree. Oh, okay. Yeah, and uh, I think graviola is used quite a lot in America for treatment against some forms of cancer. Oh, huh. Yeah, graviola, and the other one was pawpaw leaves and the ointment that smelled really terrible. I don't know what was in that. Oh, the leaves are bitter. Yeah, so we Frank had to crush the leaves with a mortar and pestle and it made a very green... Uh, juice and I had to sip mm -hmm. that during the day and although it was bitter and tasted terrible it was obviously something my body really needed because I wanted it all the time you know I couldn't until ah. it was time to have more my body was just crying out for it hmm. 
And so how long did it take for your symptoms to lessen? Sure. Well, I think I felt better within 24 hours. Wow. But maybe that was just mind over matter, but I, perhaps it was just because I felt so positive about the natural medicine. I started to see an improvement straight away. Wow. And then within, I think, a month, I had most of my energy back. And then it took another month, really, for me to be back in the canoe. Uh, that's a lot less than two years. Yeah, that's right. But the good news is I can never get chikungunya again. Oh, because you have an immunity. Yeah, that's right. Once you have it once, never again. Oh, cool. Yeah. <laughs> I so feel... how do you feel now about, you know, any kind of diseases or something that might be... Um, endemic to that area it sounds as if mm. the people who actually live there have been handling this for a long time that's right they laugh about it they say oh yeah chikungunya tries to get us but it never does because we take the medicine <laughs> so mm -hmm. now I'm not paranoid about it I think I survived it I found the medicine it worked well I know how I know now what the symptoms of mosquito-borne diseases are. I know to start taking the natural medicine straight away, not to just put all my faith in the medical profession uh, and mm -hmm. to look beyond that for alternative uh, treatments as well. And uh, no, I'm not as frightened of it anymore. Now you said that your life in the Amazon has done uncomfortable but thrilling things to your brain and I'd like to know more about what that was um, first of all what were you what were you doing day to day you were writing you were working what kind of uh, what kind of work were you doing uh, when I first went to Guyenne I was still working in horticulture so I was doing a little bit of research and I was writing up plant labels and sourcing seed in the Amazon to send back and then after that, I realized that my life was changing and I couldn't understand it. So I started documenting what I started a journal and documenting mm -hmm. what I did each day and how life was becoming easier. And I started to put a newsletter together of all my experiences and how I was feeling to friends at home. And people started asking me, please keep writing, please write more, it's really inspiring. You know, we wish we could change our lives. We wish we could find happiness. And then you should really write a book. And that's when I came up with the idea of Wild Roots and started to document how those uncomfortable but thrilling things were happening in my life and in my brain. And so can you give me an example? I mean, obviously the illness that you had, but what were some of the other ways that you saw yourself changing from day to day? Sure. Uh, well, when I started writing the book, I needed some office space because we lived in a very small carpet. So Frank built me a platform up in the tree canopy. And okay, maybe you should explain what a carpet is because I, I looked sure. it up and I saw pictures, but... <laughs> Okay. People who are listening probably won't know. Uh, carpet is the Amerindian term for an open dwelling. And it's essentially a roof with just a lot of space underneath. 
So it doesn't have any windows or lockable doors. Some of them do. They vary greatly. Some are completely open. Some have small closed-in sections. Some might have wooden shutters. But all and they're on stilts, right? Some are on stilts. It depends if they're on the flats. They're on mm. stilts. But some have a mud brick half wall and uh, are open above. But the idea of a carpet is to have a lot of ventilation through the home because the humidity is so high that if you close your home in, you'll be doing a lot of cleaning of mildew. Oh. Huh. Everything goes mildew. Mosquito screen goes mildew. All your bedding is damp and mildew. You can't have your house closed in. It has to be able to breathe. Wow. Mm. Okay, so Frank built you a tree house. Oh, so he built the tree house, which is essentially a tree house, but at that time it didn't have a roof. And uh, it just had my fold-up chair, my table, and my laptop. So the first time I climbed up onto my deck, I spread my arms like the flying scene in the Titanic and said, wow, look at all the trees and this is heaven and I can't wait to be up here with nature. Then I turned my computer on and switched on Wi-Fi and I was answering my emails, getting some drafts of the manuscript together. And at the end of the day, when I got off the platform, I realised that I hadn't heard one sound or seen one thing in nature. All I did for almost eight hours was stare at my computer screen. I felt, I felt, how can you do that? How can you not see anything around you when you're in the canopy of, of the tree? It, and I think they call it the cocktail party effect, where you're so used to focusing on one thing, which was for me my laptop, that you screen out everything that is irrelevant and I had ignored nature so often that I'd completely tuned it out. And I didn't even hear a bird. And once I became aware of that, I tried to listen. But it's not easy because you've lost that sense. Like It came as a shock to me that I had to really concentrate on a bird because it wasn't a sense that I was used to. So as the days went by, I started to hear a bird but it was just a bird. But then I heard more birds than hundreds of birds. And then I could di dif differentiate between the different tunes of each bird. And then the birds, they started to notice me and they'd soar across my laptop or they'd sit right beside me on the desk. <laughs> and sometimes they'd be so close that I could literally if I wanted to, I could touch them. You know, I could see their little beaks open when they sang and watch their tails bobbing. And mm -hmm. it, wildlife, the monkeys and the birds, it had to bring me back. I, I honestly think that all that wildlife probably looked at me and said, what is wrong with this person just looking <laughs> at this screen? It's, come on, we have to bring her back. We have to bring her home. And, of course, the monkeys... There was no ignoring them. Oh, man. I want to meet monkeys so bad. <laughs> I, <laughs> I really do. I mean, I don't like zoos or anything, yeah. and, but I love, I, I just want to hang out with monkeys. Oh, yeah. It, it's their faces. They've got their most innocent little inquisitive faces. 
And the first day I saw the monkeys, I was sort of aware of a bit of sound in the background, but as usual, I was focused on my laptop. But then I heard the unmistakable sound of a, a twig or a branch snap. So I looked up. And, of course, there was a, a tamarind monkey and he was probably two metres just looking straight into my face. <laughs> and when I looked into the branches, I saw a mother and she had a teeny little baby, like a little backpack on her back. And yeah, and it was amazing. And I really kicked myself. I thought, are you insane? Why didn't you look up sooner? And, mm -hmm. and then I had a pair of iguanas lived in a tree next to my deck. And the first time, because they, they crashed to the ground, they literally leap from a branch from about 15 metres and crash to the ground and they claw the bark and crash through branches on the way. And the first mm. time that happened, I almost had a heart attack because I didn't even <laughs> know that there was an iguana there <laughs> that close <laughs> to me. So all these things, they brought me back to nature. And now it's like... Uh, I those senses that I'd lost the sounds the smell the sights of nature it's like they were being restored going on with Frank since he had not lived there before I mean was he having similar kinds of experiences or or was he oriented slightly differently or what was that like yeah Frank came to Guyenne from a different place to me and uh, it's been really lovely watching him connect with nature because it isn't really something that he set out to do uh, being an international athlete, he had travelled a lot. He's travelled all around the world, and he had. And he's an athlete in can canoe races, right? Yeah, that's what his, his competition was. That's right. It's Olympic sprint canoe. Mm -hmm. Was his sport, so he was a successful international competitor. And after he retired from professional sport, like a lot of athletes, it's hard to come down because. Mm. They've been on such a high and they've achieved a lot of success in their sport, which is what they love, and every single day they've strived towards a goal and then all of a sudden there's no goal. Right. But Frank is a very optimistic person. He's very happy. He's very strong physically and mentally and he only ever thinks about what he wants. And uh, he's really good. He keeps me positive because if ever I get down about the state of the world, it's always Frank that says, Donna, only think about what you want. If everybody hmm. thought about what they wanted, the world would transform into a better place. So hmm. One day before, when we were discussing moving to the Amazon and whether it would become permanent, he said to me one day that he hated which is a very strong word for him to use, he hated what his life had become. And I found that really alarming for somebody like him to feel that way. So it was a change of direction. So as soon as he got to Guyenne, 
he fell in love with it straight away. I was frightened of it, but he embraced it. And I think it was like a huge burden was lifted off his shoulders because Hmm. he didn't, a lot of the pressure fell onto him. You know, he had a business in Australia and that's always stressful in having people work for you. You know, there's complications. There's a lot of stress involved there in the successful business, being able to pay the people that work for you. And, sure. Uh, and he had a mortgage and he had all those things and he felt trapped. He felt really weighed down and trapped. So in Guyane, life totally changed. We lived in a tiny little car, but uh, he didn't have to work anywhere near the hours that he was used to. Um, he grew his hair long <laughs> um, and yeah, he had a lot more time to do what he loved, which was teach people how to paddle and to spend time on the river. And and I started to notice as he spent more time in nature, when he came home, he'd walk straight out onto my platform and he'd stand there looking out. What have you seen today? What monkeys have you seen? What birds have you seen? And he'd be out there trying to spot the wildlife in nature. And that was very different to the Frank in Australia who would walk into the house a bit stressed, get on the computer, do his book work, have dinner and then watch TV. I mean, he mm. doesn't he don't even have a television now. He wa- he doesn't want a television in the house. You um you said that Frank really was hating what he had become. It sounded like now, it was for similar reasons as as your dissatisfaction, right? The kind of the yeah. I wasn't happy and I felt Mm. a discontent and an emptiness inside. Frank had never felt that. He's always been very strong mentally, very in control of his mind and happy. And he was happy, but he didn't like what his life had become. He didn't like that he couldn't teach people how to paddle, that he had to work for 60 hours a week so that he could live in the big house and have the car and all the other things that, or the pressures that he put on himself as well. And uh, I, I suppose he succumbed to pressure and expectations too. And he didn't like that his life had come down to that. He wanted to do, he wanted to do more with his life than accumulate wealth. And he felt like he was trapped into that sort of system and he couldn't see any way out. Mm-hmm. But, um, he was still happy. Yeah, he he was happy in himself, but he wasn't happy with his situation. I remember you uh, you described him. It was uh, I guess a race was going on, or you were on a you were on a packing trip or something on the river, and you said that he was walking around looking as if he was listening to a meditation tape. <laughs> he, he so he seems like a really <laughs> yeah. kind of present guy yeah yeah he's really in control of his thoughts and his mind and he's a very he's a he just takes life as it comes and you know that journey into the forest that was hard I was freaking out I was getting attacked by wasps and bitten by ants and the canoe was overturning and it you know and I was sweaty and I was dirty and it was hot and it was hard but he's just get on with it you know you just 
that's the way it is. You deal with it, you meet the challenges, you get on with it. And I guess it's that attitude, which was why I was an Olympian. How, how do you have Wi-Fi? Oh, because <laughs> I, I live in I, don't, I live in Vermont, which what? is in the northeastern part of the U.S., and um, we live on a farm, and it's kind of out in the boonies. But I mean, our our Wi-Fi sucks, oh. so I'm wondering how you had it Amazon. When I say I have Wi-Fi, I lose this. I use that term loosely. Sometimes I have a connection that's about the same speed as the old dial-up internet. Mm-hmm. Uh, when for the first year I didn't have any internet at all then we got internet and it took seven months for it to be connected and now I have an extremely slow connection so it's Mm -hmm. only basic I can send emails and sometimes if the weather is very fine uh, I might be able to upload a photo to Facebook but most of the time it's just emails um, so you said that there were there were countless times when I thought I'd never survive in French Guiana, that change was too tough and progress too slow, but I kept going. Can you give me an example? I mean, obviously the illness was one, but can you give me an example of like a time when you thought, I just don't know if I can do this. You know, maybe this just isn't me. And then what it took to get you past that point. Sure. Coming from Australia, first the UK and then Australia, they're countries that have a very high level of customer service. <laughs> and you should have spent time in Italy. <laughs> oh, oh, really? <laughs> Are they, does that mean they're good or they're not so good? Uh, not so good. Okay. Well, see, <laughs> I love Italy. Yeah. I love Italy and I love Italians. But this this is an example. I have a friend who's Roman and... But he lived in the U.S. for a long time, and he went back there, and he, he was still working. He's an academic, and he had issues with his internet. And so he was talking to this guy who was, like, in Sicily or something about his internet. And the problem, he says, I need this for work. And so the guy said to him, the telephone company representative said, well, maybe you should develop different interests. Now, I myself, I like to cook. You know, <laughs> he was telling him to do something that wouldn't require the internet. <laughs> oh, look, I should have gone to Italy before I went to Guyenne because that might have <laughs> prepared me for what came. Because like him, I had trouble with the internet and I phoned the technician and in the end he said to me, I can explain what happened. has happened. There's a cable thief, an internet cable thief, working in your area and they've stolen the cable outside your home. And I said to him, well, they must have only stolen half of it because the internet still half works. And he said, oh, bien, sir, certainly it happens all the time. (laughs) So, yeah, a similar thing. So I went from one extreme to the other and the lack of industry services and resources, it hit me like a brick wall. And Mm -hmm. that's in simple things like when we drove to the beach, there was no car park. When I walked onto the beach, there were no lifeguards. When I walked off the beach, there were no showers. Uh, Walking down the pavements in Australia, even if the pavement doesn't line up by half a centimetre, the council workers will have the grinder out, making sure the pavement's flat and level. 
you can wow. walk around Australia with looking at the sky and you're not going to trip up or trip over anything. In Guyana, in Guyane, you wouldn't last five minutes like that. You'd fall down a <laughs> hole. Okay, That's why you don't see any strollers in Guyane. Uh, but it was just about adapting. Like, sure, there's no showers when I walked off the beach. So all I had to do was make sure I had a five-litre bottle of water in the car each time I went. Like, not everything had to be the big drama that it was to me in the beginning. And mm -hmm. I, for the first six months, I must have said to Frank 50 times, we've come to Guyane 20 years too early. Oh, really? Yeah. And then I started to think, hmm, maybe they don't want to change. Maybe they're happy living this slow life. And, and so I've brought my expectations here and I couldn't understand why they didn't want to be like Australia, why they didn't want to give better service, why they didn't want more resources. And, yeah, it was me who needed to change. And once I changed my mindset and didn't and became more relaxed and happier within myself, I didn't nitpick about every service interaction and I became more easygoing, more forgiving of their mistakes. I accepted failure as part of everyday life and I started to see the funny side of the chaos and just started to laugh it off. And uh, if, and I laughed a lot. And I think if you came to Guyane and you didn't learn how to laugh, you'd go crazy. <laughs> <laughs> What's your social life like? The, are the people you know from different kinds of backgrounds? Are some of them locals or some of them expats? How, what is your life like there in terms of human contact? Sure. It was really tough for me at first because I didn't speak French. And uh... Do you now? I speak enough to get by. I speak enough that I can do everything now. I can get by fine. I don't know all the words that I need to know, so I just keep saying words, different words, <laughs> <laughs> until finally who I'm speaking to gets it. But uh, at first I felt very isolated, and it was Frank, you might have read in the book, that manipulated a situation so that I joined a parog team, a canoe racing right. team, and that made me interact with people. And then I realised how accepting people in Guyane are. They don't care who you are, where you're from, what culture, what colour, what your financial work status is, what your language is. You know, it's a real mosh posh of people there and uh, it's live and let live. So I made friends really quickly when I got over the fear like I thought oh people are going to think I'm stupid because I can't speak French or I, I made it difficult for myself but once I got out there with people and in sport as well sport doesn't have any barriers and I made a lot of friends and most of my friends almost all my friends want to be able to speak better English and, oh. yeah, that makes it easier for me. So Frank Hoppers said, don't speak English to her. She has to learn to speak French. But they were not like, no, no, we really want to learn how to speak English. So, yeah, it's easy for me. And our friends now, uh, we've got 
lots of French expat friends. We have a lot of Creole friends. We have Haitian, Brazilian friends, Surinamese friends. A lot of my first friends were from two countries along uh, Guiana with an A because they're mm-hmm. mostly English-speaking and a lot of people from Suriname were English-speaking as well. We have Amerindian friends, but I, a lot of our friends we've made through sport. Now, when you say Amerindian, mm-hmm. you mean the indigenous people, right? That's right. There's... And so have you met different cultures of indigenous people while you were there? Or since you, you spend a lot of time on the rivers. Sure. Um, so what's what, what has that level of contact been like? Uh, when we paddle along the rivers, we paddle alongside a lot of little villages. And a lot of those villages are Saramaka villages. That's um, Bushnengi communities and mm-hmm. the Bushnengi are mostly people that fled from Suriname and they have an African background and they mm-hmm. went to Suriname for the slave trade and some Af- some people of African descent, the Creole people, they chose a European way of life But the Bushnengi people, they stuck to their African roots and they went to live in the forest and they live Hmm. uh, a lot like they did in Africa. You know, they live in simple carpet enclosures and they wear a a kanga, which is like a sarong, and Mm -hmm. practice a lot of their traditional traditional art. Um, they, they They still wash in the rivers. They... And they are very. In, they grow all their own food. They're very in tune with nature, and they live a very simple life on the rivers. And hmm. children are amazing. The whenever we paddle past in the canoe, all the children run to the bank. And uh, I don't know if you know sprint canoe. We kneel on one knee. A canoe is yeah. Why is that? You get better leverage or something. Yeah, that's right. Um, it's very technical, but the sprint canoe is very narrow. You can't kneel in two knees. It's very na- narrow and very unstable. Awesome. And uh, and it's because of that that it's very fast. So that's a mm-hmm. canoeist stance. So the kids, they drop onto one knee and they grab a stick and they paddle in time with Frank. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> if we can pull in, we do. And the children... They just run to the canoe and they absolutely, their life depends on it. They have to try the canoe mm-hmm. and they're naturally athletic and oh, it's fun. It's like a circus because everybody from the village comes to the bank and they laugh and they cheer the kids on and yeah, it's great. Oh, that sounds wonderful. Oh, there's a, and the Hmong people too. Um, we di- We have a lot of Hmong friends who we've met through going to the fresh produce market. Yeah, because we can't buy fruit and vegetable uh, vegetables from the supermarkets because everything is imported from France. Because French Guiana, oh, weird. Yeah, it's part of the EU, so it doesn't. French trade. Guiana is part of the EU. Yep, we're as much a part of the EU as Brussels is. 
oh where you repair. That's, a, mm-hmm. that's amazing. Yeah. So we don't trade outside the EU. So we don't get any food from Brazil. Wow. It all comes via France. So when you see kiwi fruit coming from New Zealand to France and then on a shipping container to French Guiana, you can imagine what the food is like in the supermarkets. Oh, not to oh. mention the carbon footprint of all that. That's it's just, and here you're living in a, in a tropical garden. Yeah, that, that's right. And we're buying food from Europe that has come a lot of the times from Spain, New Zealand, Australia, China. Mm. So because of all those reasons, the footprint, the quality of the food, the price of the food, most people buy all their fruit and vegetables from the produce market. And all the 90% of all the produce in Guyenne is grown by the Hmong. And- wow, you know, we have Hmong settlements here in the U.S., um, of course, after the U.S. did a bang-up job of destroying Southeast Asia. Mm-hmm. And uh, a lot of them live in Wisconsin, for example. I mean, they live all over, but, so- you know, you think of somebody who lives in a really cold place like Wisconsin. So that's interesting that you have settlements of Hmong there. They're an amazing people. At first, they didn't have any choice where they went to live. And the mm-hmm. Creole population, which is the biggest population in Guyane, didn't want them here. So they were frightened off. The Creole people were frightened off by rumours that we were going to get 500,000 Hmong here. And it was made really difficult for the Hmong. And they were put way in a town called Cacao, which is way, way from the coast. It is way out there in the jungle. And they were just mm-hmm. dumped out there. And France gave them a little bit of money to help them get established. And they they thrived with a lot of hard work and not very yeah yeah and not very much help oh it takes a lot of guts yeah uh, to resettle like that let's talk about some of the the resource pressures that you've seen there because um you mentioned chancing upon a gold mine a gold camp where uh, mining was being done illegally. You didn't know if the people were coming back while you were there. Um, and, and the official person told you that they were dangerous. And so it looks like there are people just trying to extract things through whatever means, no matter how damaging. Mm. The illegal gold mines cause a lot of problems in Guyane. Uh, apart from the deforestation, that causes a lot of mercure in the water and it's poisoning the fish. And the Amer Indians' diet is comprised largely of fish and they have a lot of illness now. There's a lot of Mm. studies going on and, yeah, they're very sick because of the illegal mining. And my initial response was, oh, it's it's mainly Brazilians that are doing the illegal mining. So my initial response was, oh, these Brazilians doing the mining. And, but then I thought, well, who's buying the gold? Right. You know, the, right. the Brazilians are very poor and they only get a small amount of money for doing a very dangerous job and we're the ones buying the gold. Right. And 
So when I saw the devastation in the forest, I saw the link. And I think that's the problem with our Western society is we don't have a link because mm -hmm. when we go and buy avocados or gold jewellery or medicine, we buy it over a shop counter. So we, we don't connect that to the land. But when you've entered a pristine environment like the Amazon and you see that devastation and you realise that we're the cause of it, that's connecting the dots. Right. And so, like me, I wouldn't buy gold jewellery again and I don't know any of my friends in Guyenne that would either. Yeah. It's a price too high to pay for a few gold trinkets or to accumulate gold bars in your bank. Yeah, it's certainly a cyanide I think they use too to uh, extract gold from from what they mine. And it's terrible. It's, it's We're fueling the demand. If we would stop buying the gold, there'd be no demand and we'd protect right. the forest. And I've had people say to me, oh, well, don't buy your laptop then because there's gold in your laptop. I'll, I'll give a bit of a plug to Hewlett-Packard here because that's one company that they recycle. But there's so much gold stored in bank vaults. I'm certain that we have enough gold to meet our means without having to go and extract more from the small parts of the Amazon that are left. I think our buying power has to start telling these companies what we want and we don't want mined gold. And beef is also an issue there. Isn't there a lot of deforestation because people are trying to ranch beef cattle? Sure. There was a program in the 70s called um, the Green Plan where large tracts of land were given to a few industrious French for them to go and clear the land and have beef cattle. And the problem with that was all that land, it was used by the local indigenous communities. And when the French were given it, they didn't want the indigenous communities on their land anymore. And they did terrible things like dump dead cow carcasses in the rivers so that children couldn't oh, swim God. where they'd always swum, just so that we could eat meat. Well, you're a vegan, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I'm a vegetarian, and, uh, God, I haven't eaten meat in probably about 45 years oh, that's or something. Brilliant. I never desire it. I never miss it. Mm -hmm. It just doesn't register, you know? Sure. Well, I was really lucky because I'm third vegetarian third generation vegetarian so ah. I never knew any different and mm -hmm. when I tried meat it really did taste like what it is dead flesh in my mouth it was foul I had no desire to ever eat it again uh, but now uh, but Frank wasn't a vegetarian and now he is a vegan and it's because of increased performance for sport he feels a lot better on a vegan diet and also because of the environment. I can't imagine now Frank knows the impact of the environment, not only on the beef in Guyenne, but all the clearing of the forest in Brazil so that they can grow soya beans to feed the beef in America. And right. I can't imagine Frank would ever eat meat again because of the environment that he performs better now being a vegan is just another bonus. 
Well, good for you. Uh, you know, the more people who, who get that message, oh. the better. And it's, you know, it's a major source of, of climate gases. And you would think, um, living in Vermont, that there would be a lot more vegetarianism than there is. But people mm. here are really into the happy meat. You know, like, well, we raise our own heirloom breeds of blah, blah, blah. Yeah, but then you, you know shoot a bolt through their head and slit their throats so yeah they have a nicer life and that's good i'm glad they're they're well cared for but there's still that power uh that power hierarchy that doesn't work yeah. out so well for the animal that's right you're breeding an animal to kill it yeah yeah you know think about that if if we needed meat to survive that's one thing but we don't we're eating meat just because we like the taste of it. There's no other reason. We're killing animals because we like the taste of dead flesh and there's just something not right about <laughs> no, that. <laughs> I agree with you. How long have you lived in Guyane at this point? Uh, this is our fourth year. Where are you now in terms of feeling happy in your life, feeling as if you have you know, a real source of strength and enjoyment? What, is, what has Guyane done for you that you can now really recognize? Sure. Well, I'd say for the first two years that I was in Guyane, I still thought it was only temporary. So I thought as soon as Frank has done this thing, set up his club, got lots of people going in the sprint canoe, we'll go home. Yay! <laughs> but now <laughs> I don't know if I want to return to a developed country, and I never thought I would say that. But I think... Um, Venturing too far from nature would make me feel anxious now. And uh, I love my time in France. I'm having a great time here. But it's for one month. Mm -hmm. And I'm in my third week now, and I really can't wait to get back. And most people would think, oh, going to Normandy, you know, it's beautiful. Obviously, mm -hmm. it's more developed oh. and everything. Do you think that there are barriers in the Western way of life, the Western way of thinking? I think that doesn't allow us that kind of contact? Yes, and I think that comes down to there's a big difference between contact with nature and connecting with nature. So here in Normandy, I have a lot of contact with nature. We spend a lot of time walking in the forest. We have a very big garden. And, yeah, I have a lot of contact. But when you've been in the Amazon and you've lived in a community like Guyane, where a lot of different cultures, races and religions get along together, they help together, they're very accepting, you no longer accept things that, like greed, unkindness, jealousy, uh, competitiveness, injustice, exploitation of people, animals and the environment. They, they might be a normal part of life, but it's not a natural way of life. And so seeing the chaos and the way people interact or don't interact together, it can really get you down. Uh, yeah, so they have contact with nature, but they don't connect with it. And that comes back to the link. They're not linked to it. So what would you say to someone who couldn't necessarily pick up and move to the Amazon? Mm, so but who wanted to have that kind of connection. Sure, because let's face it, people are trapped. 
I'm convinced that people want to escape, but they don't know how to do it. They're trapped in a system, and not everybody can go to the Amazon. That would be a disaster if everybody packed up their trunkies and said, let's all get free cheap flights to the Amazon. <laughs> that would be the end of the Amazon. The good news is spending, connecting with nature is addictive and it accumulates. So the more you do it, it accumulates with you and you want more. It's like a drug. So I'd say get out there on the weekends, camp, uh, swim in the rivers, you know, swim in the yeah, swim in the rivers. You don't have to swim in a swimming pool. Uh, camp, right. go for walks in nature, and sit quietly in nature and be open to it, and really listen to nature. It's easy to say that, and there's a lot of people spending time in nature. And I wrote about this in a little book that people can find for free on my website. And it's called The Awe of Nature, Why We Need to Seek It Out. And, and it's about awe-inspiring events that occur in nature and how that can change your life. And uh, astronauts talk about it, how when they're in space mm -hmm. and they look down at our little blue dot that's a planet, how it transforms their life. And that's what happened to me in the Amazon. Uh, I was deep inside the forest so I'd already spent a year, lots of contact with nature, and everything was wonderful, life was good. And then I went on a scientific expedition deep into the interior, and I walked up onto an Inselberg, and that's a mountain in the forest. And I slogged and stumbled and sweltered all the way to that, the summit of that mountain because someone had told me the view from the top could transform your life. So I thought, oh, yeah, you know, I've seen, I've stood on mountains before. <laughs> I'm a horticulturalist. I've worked with nature. I've had lots of contact. Yeah, life in the Amazon is great and I've joined the docks and I've got lots of contact. And, yeah, life is better. Life's great. I'm really happy. Then I pushed out of the thorny scrub off the forest track onto the exposed granite, kicked off my boots and started scrambling over the these huge boulders that were like sand dunes until I reached the precipice and looked out at thousands and thousands of hectares of the Amazon forest and honestly the view, it just left me dumbstruck and I closed my eyes and I took some deep breaths and I really tried to connect with all that Amazon that was out there. I really valued it and I, uh, and I felt an intense feeling start to rise up from my belly and it, it was just like something, it was like I heard something in my head saying, you're part of this, embrace this. It was mm. like a faint whisper and I thought, oh, first I thought, oh, you're being stupid, it's just a thought. But it was more than that, it was real. And I think once you surrender, and I surrendered to that, and then the energy just hit me like a tidal wave and uh, it's like 
you know, I, I started to cry. I just dropped to my knees and there were tears coursing down my face and it was like I just let go of every bit of drama that I'd created in my life and all the self-doubt and everything that had held me back. I just let it go. And the energy, my blood started to pump, like really pump. And on, I felt like I could do anything. I felt like I could play mm. Mozart, paint, run, <laughs> you know, yeah, it, it's not what I expected. Something in me came alive for sure. So it kind of rebooted something in you. Is that, have you maintained that? Yeah. Can you, can you get in touch yes, with that? Yeah, sure. It's almost oh, like wow. a life force in the jungle connected with an ember, a tiny little ember of the same life force mm -hmm. that was in me to give me that vibrancy and that energy. And now I know where to look for it. And so now when I'm in mm. France and sometimes things get a bit hectic, I can just shut my eyes and I can go back to that place. And that's mm. really empowering. And that's the difference between contact and connecting with nature. And the more people can try and connect with nature, it builds up inside you. And you don't have to live in a mud hut in nature. You just have to spend time there. And that helps you when you go back into our modern consumer world. It just helps you cope with it better. Talking about our modern consumer world, what would you say to people who are just starting to catch on that climate change is real, that problems with consumption are real, that this system just can't be maintained and you know from all the sure. from all the people who are trying to get out of the mm -hmm. system and who are suffering within it you'd think they'd say well let's try something else but you know that involves giving stuff up and for people like americans for example many of whom cling mm -hmm. to their possessions as part of their identity or cling to their status um, what, how would you encourage people to take those steps towards something simpler? Well, first, I think we need to acknowledge that we've built a society designed to keep us away from nature because nature mm -hmm. is where we'll find spiritual enlightenment. That's my belief. But if we were to all become enlightened, then wealth, security and power would lose its appeal. So that would undermine our economy. And all. And if we engaged, also those who engage in a more than human world, in nature, they would not endanger the health of the planet. So industrial growth would collapse. Okay? Right. So we're under a lot of pressure to conform. And now giving up stuff, uh, as far as that, it's tough. I know I had to give up a lot of stuff. We sold everything we owned when we came to Guyenne. I think we're raised in a culture that teaches us we never have enough. Mm. Right? We're always striving, like you said, to make more money, buy more objects, eat better, eat more processed food. And as a result, we've become very wasteful. And we don't consider how this affects others. But for me, spending time in the Amazon 
and with Indigenous people, I saw firsthand how habitat loss, it affects us. Um, indirectly, it's going to affect us. Mm-hmm. And then I saw people in Guyenne who hardly have anything. Like they just live under a piece of tin, but they're always happy. And I thought, well, how can they be happy if they don't have a new car and they don't live in an air-conditioned house and all those modern trappings that I had? And I think we worry about money a lot. I did. I worried Mm -hmm. about money. I was putting away money for my retirement and, oh, it was always money, 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 had to get more money. It's because uh, it's basically related to fear that we won't be able to take care of ourselves Mm-hmm. So we need money to look after ourselves. Now, we're separated from life and we don't trust that nature can take care of us. Mm-hmm. But the people in Guyenne that still have a strong connection to nature, they don't have that fear because they belong. They have a sense of belongingness. They belong in nature. They don't obsess about money taking care of them because they believe that nature will take care of them. Mm-hmm. And that, and knowing that frees them from the anxiety, insecurity and stress that we have. I mean, in a tropical environment, you don't have the harsh climates where nothing's growing, nothing's edible. I mean, you really have to plan for that. Sure. But, but that can be done too. And people have done it, you know, for tens of thousands of years. So it's not as mm-hmm. if... It's exclusive to um, the kind of climate that you have. That this kind of life takes on a life of its own that it really doesn't merit. <laughs> oh, In terrible. terms of how miserable it makes people. Sure, and I think it comes down to enlightenment. And if people can somehow find uh, a spiritual alignment or a connection with nature or, or something more, something beyond what we're living. Like, don't think there are, don't think there's not times when I don't want an air conditioned home, you know, when I'm at home and I'm sweating and I think, oh, it'd be nice to have air conditioning. Or when I want to have a home on the water where I can just put my canoe off the jetty. Or there's times when Frank says, oh, a sports car would be nice. <laughs> but the difference is we're no longer willing to sacrifice our freedom, our values or the planet to get them. That's mm. the difference. I think it's human nature to want all those things and I want all those things still, but I won't sacrifice the Amazon to get those things. Nothing could make me. Mm. And and so it wasn't a conscious decision on my part to leave all those things the spending time in the Amazon and connecting with nature brought that out in me and Mm. also in America and Australia people have a lot of objects but they've worked especially in America and Australia they've worked very hard to achieve that level of comfort and success and wealth because, you know, they've all come from poorer countries to America and Australia. Mm-hmm. So they've worked really hard, haven't they? Uh, America and Australia is the lucky country and they've worked hard to get where they are in the land of opportunity. And it's hard. It's hard to let go of that. 
But at the end of the day, I think it comes down to choice. Do you mm-hmm. want to live in an unsustainable home or do you want to live a more simple life or a sustainable home? Do you want to remain in the busyness and chaos of your normal life or do you want to slow down to the rhythm of nature? And and for a lot of people it's hard to talk about these soul-searching topics as well. You know, they find it quite intimidating. But all I would say to people is we're, that's okay. We're all going to come to this place in our own time but just be aware that each of our fates is tied to the earth and it's our collective impact that's going to make changes in the world. That's beautiful. We're in it together. Yeah. Yeah, that's one thing. I don't judge people anymore because I was there. I was in that society. That was my normal. I had no idea. And that's why I was so unhappy. Mm Mm-hmm. Thank you for telling us about how you found another option. And I think we can all do it, no matter where we live, to to be more conscious of what our real grounding is. You know, what's our real context? It's not, you know, where you fit on the organizational chart. It's the earth right under your feet, so... And honestly, all the people that feel the pressure and expectations imitate, and they won't feel any more than I felt. <laughs> like I really was under a lot of pressure from my upbringing and expectations. But now, if I go back to Australia and people look at me and think, oh, she's a loser because she doesn't have any possessions and she's got a bomb of a car or probably not even a car at all, that is water off a duck's back. <laughs> That doesn't mean a thing to me. If someone calls me a loser, I think I'll feel good about that because I'm just so content Mm -hmm. and I never had that in Australia before. Thanks to Donna Mulvena and thank you for listening. You can find Donna's books, including Wild Roots, on her website, donnamulvena.com. That's M-U-L-V as in Victor E-N-N-A. There's a link in the show notes of this episode. And how would you like to do me a big favor? If you like this podcast, I'd really love it if you left a review on iTunes. Go to iTunes and search podcasts for the Big Chew podcast. Thank you. Bye.